Finally, this is the Jeff Salgado Show with my co-host, Mike Boyd. How you doing, Mike? Doing good, man. How about you? I'm very excited. Today, we have an interview with Carl Alvarez from the legendary bands Descendants and All. Fucking sick. Yep. How you been? I've been great, man. Can't complain. Mostly just been working a lot, doing a lot of shit with the bitters. We just dropped the EP back on Christmas, actually. Nice. Yeah. So Congratulations. Check. Thank you. Uh, we actually just started over the weekend working on another EP. We just tracked everything for it. So we'll have another EP in March. I mean, there's nothing better to do. We can't play a show. Right. But I heard you got married. <laughs> yeah, I did. I did get married. Uh, I always said I never would. I yeah, was, what the fuck? I was against marriage as a form of property and whatever kind of uh, ideology you attach to it but i just i just, a, I just a thought ring on your finger yeah now. i got a ring on my finger man it was really yeah. awkward to get used to but uh she's uh she's great and she's happy and i wanted to give her her day we've been together for a very long time and i don't see me going anywhere well congratulations man thank you i appreciate that um i you know i just thought about it i, I turned 50 last or this year because it's still 2020, right? It feels yeah. like it. We're on the 14th month of 2020 at this point. <laughs> it is the 2nd February of 2020. <laughs> totally. 2020 hasn't gone anywhere. For anybody who thinks it has, you're kidding yourselves. But uh, yeah, you know, I just, I, I, I felt like, you know, I didn't want to be 50 years old and single. It just seemed depressing. That's just me. That's my personal opinion. Yeah. But you weren't single. You still were with her. No, I meant like single, uh, like not married. Like I mean, settled down and kind of just focused on your life. You know, I, I feel I'm I, everybody. A couple people ask me, you know, is it is it different? And I'm like, yeah, it actually is. It's very serious. You know, it's not just a oh, this is my girlfriend. I mean, who wants to say oh, I'm going to be 70, 70 years old? Oh, this is my girlfriend. Like, come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> K. Hugh Hefner. <laughs> yeah, it's just stupid. Uh, so I, you know, I love her to death, and then we have a really solid relationship or marriage now, and it's it's really exciting because I got to grow up sooner or later, man. I had to grow up. Got tired of being a kid. You can still be a kid and married. Not really. I mean, not the same kind of kid. I'm I always going to be immature. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's like you don't have to mature or anything like that. For sure. Speaking of immaturity, how's psychosomatic doing? Yeah, right. Exactly. Uh, we're doing good. Um. We have a video coming out, a new one, and uh, it'll be premiered soon. And we also have a couple playthroughs that will be, I think uh, Toby did one, just of him doing one song. And uh, Victor and Dan both do a playthrough at the same time on one of our songs as well. I'm not going to announce what songs they are yet, but you'll find out soon enough. What do you mean by playthrough? It's like them actually like taking a video of them playing to the song or what? Yeah, they actually play a live track to the not it's not the album track it's them actually playing over the other tracks of the song okay like with the with victors and Dan's, it's just the guitars and there's no bit there's no vocals but they have bass and drums backing it right but it's just so they can show you exactly what they do it's pretty impressive you know and toby does the same thing he's actually playing the drums over a song that he did with the other tracks that are going so when dave recorded the album he gave us the stems to, to manipulate that's it. what i was going to ask so basically yeah. you're able to go in and be like i'm going to drop out the guitar so he can do a live performance exactly. or i'm going to drop out the bass so he, you could do a live performance yeah and then we, we that's dope and we film it and then uh, or they filmed it I, I didn't have anything to do with it they filmed it and then they edited it so you can get different angles sweet and um i think uh 
Vic, Toby did his all by himself, and then Victor and Dan had Mike Alvarez from Flub, the singer. He did theirs. He videoed it. So it they they both look really cool, and they'll they should be out soon. Very cool. So we relocated from where we were originally doing the podcast at the House of Hits, and we pretty much ditched the room because we didn't see any reason why to keep it going in a in a pandemic when we weren't playing or doing anything. The only thing we were doing eventually. Uh, was the podcast in the studio. So we ended up just moving this whole thing over to my office at my house. So what do you think, Mike? You like it here? Oh, yeah. Uh, there's no uh, bleed over from bands rehearsing. From shitty bands just interrupting <laughs> us all. <laughs> like, yeah. uh, I, I could write a thesis on the shit that we heard there, man. <laughs> For sure. Speaking of bands, let's get to our interview. As a bassist, he's a huge influence on me, as well as an overall professional musician. Uh, I've seen his band many times, and every time I've seen him, he's impressed me. He's a sick, one of my favorite bass players in the world. So uh, we'll get to our interview with Carl Alvarez. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing all right. How are you doing tonight, Jeff? Pretty good, man. Uh, so you're in Fort Collins, Colorado? I live in Loveland, Colorado, which Where's... is you know strikingly apt for a Descendants guy, right? I live in Loveland. <laughs> uh, it's it's cool. It's like right down the road. It allows me to go up and practice with Bill the amount of too many times a week that we do when you know when we're working. Right. <laughs> so, you guys, uh, you guys do anything right now currently? Well, we're busy making a new record, but you know this whole pandemic thing kind of put a cramp in our style with it. And I recorded a bunch of stuff back in the summer. And theoretically, within the near future, I'll get in there and record a bunch of other stuff. But, I mean, this is interesting because we now make records. I mean, the last record was kind of good training for the pandemic because Milo lives in Delaware, and that's where the vocals were tracked. You know, right. due to the nature of modern technology, he tracked his stuff out there. Stefan owns his own recording studio out in Oklahoma, so he tracked all of his stuff out there. Meanwhile, over here in Colorado, Bill's got a full-scale ba- studio in the basement of his house. And in the last record, of course, it was the back porch of a different house. But we just go and record there. So ba- it's, it's weird. It's it's sort of a throwback to when I first started playing music when you'd go over to your friend's basement, you know, and make a bunch of noise. And that was, you know, the most fun you had all day. So so basically and, you guys, like, bounce, like, uh, are you just emailing his each other tracks yeah 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 yeah. we're emailing tracks and we've worked together so many years you know we really and actually weirdly enough now that we're all at our different locations we, we're actually better at communicating you know kind of what we want or what we're after i think than when you're in the room together right you know i, I think it's kind of funny how it actually opens some communications Every, it's funny. everybody gets a turn right <laughs> yeah man it's, it's it's fun and we and you know stefan wrote a lot of stuff for this record which if you know our band's history stefan you know traditionally doesn't write all that much right it's mostly and, Bill, but, right? And, yeah well i mean all of us write in record to record there's you know stronger majorities than others right you know but i mean stefan's been on a tear the past few years of just you know Totally writing all kinds of stuff all the time. I'm actually very, very happy about that. So I wanted to ask you how you guys write. Like, is it just because everybody has different ways, but is it just one of you guys comes up with a riff and the other ones add adds onto it, or do you come up with a whole song, or how does that work? It can be very, it can be very detailed. You know, I mean, 
One of the things about our group is that um, Stefan is a very, very good drummer. Oh, wow. And, I didn't know and Bill is a very, very good guitar player. Milo is a very good guitar player. And, you know, and he, of course, can handle bass, no problem. I can play, I play guitar, not as well as bass, but I do okay with it. I, you know, I can, basically what I'm saying is, if someone has a really specific idea that they're going for, it will be on the demo that we learn from, you know? Mm-hmm. And a lot of the time that can be very specific. For example, on the last record, there's a song called, uh, called Shameless Halo that Stefan wrote virtually every note of the bass part. Oh, wow. And I went to, you know, agree, well, to, you know, it's no amount of trouble to try to do what he did because he writes a good part. Right. But that's kind of been true of the band since before I was even in it because the song My Age, Bill wrote the bass part to it. Mm-hmm. You know, there's always quite a bit of back and forth, you know, on that level of like the, you know, very few people are used to having the drummer be a songwriter in the first place. Right. So the fact that Bill's one of the, you know, the primary. But that's been true in all incarnations of the band, pretty much. Everyone in the band writes. So I, I've noticed, you know, I was just kind of going, um, I think I was listening a little bit all today. I was listening because I'm a bass player. So I really right. hone in on your style. And you really detail the song out. It's not, you're not just writing the root notes. You're all over the place a lot of the time. Now, when you do that, do you have to like line up with Stefan's keys? Is that what you do, or do you just... Oh, well, I mean, okay, some stu- it's kind of detailed here. Stefan and I have been hanging out together since we were 12 years old, and he was always... I mean, he was a very talented guitar player, even at age 12, and over the years, uh, punk rock hit, and we started doing bands together, and I ended up playing bass, but he kind of taught me the rudiments of how to play bass and we really did learn how to work around each other really well. You know, I mean, that's the thing about it. I learned to play to his guitar. Right. And as far as the really, you know, the involved bass stuff, Descendants were a weird band to join because it was a band where, you know, the elaborate bass parts were really, really welcome mm-hmm. because of the tradition that Tony Lombardo had set. And um, even before Tony Lombardo, Dave Nolte, who later, you know, or was the bass player for the last, they set a certain standard for what the bass was going to be, and I inherited the gig and kind of ran with it, I guess. I mean, I I don't know any other way to put it than that, just like, so, but if it's about knowing what the song is, well, hell, I mean, we know the keys, we know the notes, you know, if, and Stefan and I often, in the old days, would try to find the most dissonant or atonal notes from one another just to, you know, because we were punk rockers and we wanted to, you know, be, I don't know, contrary. <laughs> right. So if you don't mind, if you don't mind, do you, do you want to tell us what it was like when you joined uh, Descendants and how that started? Yeah. So I was, at the time I was playing in a orchestra for a musical theater in Salt Lake City, Utah, where I spent my, you know, most of my youth. <clears throat> and... I had a band with the guys in the pit orchestra, the guitar player and the drummer, that we used the practice space for the theater to come up with a set of material, and we started playing out under the band name Pravda in Utah, and we got a three-day run of shows in Boise, Idaho. And we went up there, and there was a band from the punk rock scene up there named SOA. I remember them. And we ended up staying at their house, and Bill called their house 
to talk to their bass player because he had liked their bass player. And that's when I first found out Descendants needed a bass player. And I, you know, and he did the player for SOA did not want it, did not want the gig. So I got, I got on the phone to Bill. And so, yeah, about a week later I took, and this is one of those weird old school things. I was a broke ass motherfucker at that point. And so I literally took a train to LA with my bass guitar and my clothing in a garbage bag. Rad. I mean, that's, you know, the, the classic story, right? And, and Bill met me at the train station. I, I guess there was some sort of audition where we played together to see if we could play together. And then we, the, he mentioned that, you know, he also needs a guitar player. And it was sort of a funny thing because Stefan had taken a turn towards, I want to say, like, very technical music. At that point, he was living in Washington, D.C. And he, like, I'm not saying technically, I'm saying like classical music, maybe, kind of thing. Yeah. And I wasn't sure that he would be interested or right for the gig or whatever. But I figured, you know, what the hell? I've known him since, you know, we were kids and he was in the first band I was ever in. He's a guitar player. So, you know, we'll give him a call. And he and Bill were on the phone together for, like, almost six hours just kind of going for the conversations that musicians have about what they like, what they don't like. Right. And yeah, and Stefan flew out the next week wow. to come and hang out. But it was, I never thought that one would work in a million years, by the way. Why is that? I think that? I told Bill, well, I, I think I told Bill, Stefan's what happens when you listen to too much Frank Zappa as a little kid. <laughs> I love Frank Zappa. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, that Stefan was into that stuff. And I, I mean, way, we were very, very young. In 1976, yeah. we were both 12 years old. Right. And, you know, and he was, he was listening to on that stuff. It was funny. The punk rock stuff came along and it was kind of funny to us because, you know, it, yeah, there was a charge from it. But honestly, there was a part of us that liked all the 70s rock stuff, too. Right. You know, so it was a weird little moment of like, okay, yeah, but can I still listen to the Captain Beefheart records if I'm, <laughs> if I'm into this music? Totally. And he, Stefan turned me on to all that stuff, all the really weird stuff. My family had very, um, I guess, kind of normal mid-square tastes. Okay. You know, we had our we had our uh, Beach Boys and, and Beatles records and along with the Neil Diamond and, you know, and all, all the normal stuff of that era. But Stefan was the guy that turned me on to just stone freaky music. Right. You know, other than like Weird Al Yankovic or whatever. So did you, did you guys just jump in and, and just start touring immediately or how did that work out? Well, uh, there was a band in Salt Lake called the Massacre Guys. And there was an existent punk rock scene there. But most of the guys in those bands were, you know, the staggering old ages of like 25 or, or something like that. <laughs> You're right. And they were older dudes and they were, you know, kind of playing the 70s punk rock vibe. And the Massacre guys, which I was not initially in, was a bunch of literal teenagers that did all ages shows. And somehow or another, you know, there was a promoter out there willing to do it, uh, ended up playing with uh, a bunch of different groups over the years. I joined because their bass player went on vacation to Greece and, you know, didn't come back. He just kind of wanted to hang out in Greece. Wow. <laughs> and I was drawing the flyers, so I ended up being the bass player in the band, which is fine because Stefan and I, you know, had already had our first punk band in high school where I sang, and I was terrible, by the way. Um, and, you know, so it was like kind of a natural fit. And the brothers in the band, besides myself and, and Stefan, John and James Schumann, 
they were they literally lived across the alley from my mom's house so it was very much a you know like and we were teenagers still so of course this is still a thing and so we had this band the massacre guys we ended up playing with the dead kennedys in uh utah and colorado and kind of traveling with them in a in our friend george gordon's van and that was i think my my first real show i think was playing the mercury cafe in denver opening for the dead kennedys wow that is amazing Which, and, and i was shit scared i mean there's no <laughs> no doubt about it you know but i mean that was the first one and then we ended up you know it's basking through there was i i, I remember uh uh doa came through black flag came through you know as as the scene was in the 80s the touring bands would come through and the massacre guys would as often as not be the opener you know and so that's when we started doing stuff tsol kind of took our band the massacre guys under their wing and we even toured to like i don't know like el paso and la and stuff like that with those guys and we were 19 years old we weren't even old enough to legally drink rad but we were out on tour <laughs> and that was that's that was my first experience of that thing and i, I actually took to it very very quickly mm-hmm you know, I actually enjoyed it a lot. And by the way, in, in a way, it's a lot less complicated than being in one place. So so you were already seasoned as a touring musician before you joined Descendants, right? I, I don't know about seasoned, but I had done it and I knew I liked it. Right. You know, and it was one of those things. But in that era, you know, the independent underground thing was so new, you never knew who you were going to run into and who you were going to end up playing with. And it was kind of a tight-knit network, really. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, they, the, the guys from uh, Black Flag had that uh, creepy crawl newsletter right? that, you know, all of our friends got that taught us about, you know, who's Kurdu, for example. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, there were all the fanzines like Flipside or Maximum Rock and Roll that would teach us about the Minutemen and all these other groups that were coming up. And, you know, the best thing I can say about Max Rock and Roll is they were very international, you know. They turned us on to the Canadian groups. They turned us on to the, you know, to the European groups. Right. And it, but it became a network. And I think it's still funny because, you know, I know people from that era that I still run into to this very day. You know, out when I'm out in Europe, there's some guy in a band we played with back in 1988 or whatever, you know. Right. And they're all still there, and a lot surprisingly, a lot of them are still very, very functional within the music scene. Totally, that's I'm pretty awesome. stoked. Now, well, I mean, it's it's kind of dumb how long this thing's lasted, right? <laughs> I don't ever want it to go away. <laughs> well, I mean, young people keep getting brought into it, and, you know, yeah. and they keep reinventing it, and I think that's always good. Absolutely, they keep it alive. It's definitely yeah, alive. Okay, now when. You you how long did it take after you joined the band to be recorded all with the descendants? Um, oh god, that was a real kind of crash course thing. Like, yeah. I think I joined in somewhere in like September or something. And I think we had the record wrapped up by January. Uh-huh. So it was very kind of a, a, a tight thing. Well, Stefan had to come out, and of course we both had to move out there. Right. And but I mean, the actual process of it, we put it together very quickly. And, you know, Stefan, I think that's one of the most interesting things is, you know, Stefan and I had just fallen into something we had no idea about. You know what I mean? We were young guys from, you know, a sort of remote city. 
with minimal recording experience, minimal any of that. And somehow, man, a bunch of material, you know, got made and put together. Yeah, that, that album rules. I mean, when the first time I heard it, I was like, because, you know, we were all laughing about Enjoy and how great that album was and funny and just really good all the way through. And then I was like, how are they going to follow this up? Well, they got new band members, so we're excited. And then we heard it and we were like, dude, that album all from The Descendants was so crisp and it had a lot of compression on it so it wasn't so like blurry and kind of janky it sounded clean and then yeah yeah, bill i mean that's the thing about it is you know all the production is largely self-taught on those records you know that's awesome and and depending on the record i mean spot was purely documentarian right you know he wanted to just this is what the band sounds like on its best day that's literally what i'm trying to do but then you started getting, like, I mean, it's funny because I don't want to grow up at Dave Tarlington and Rich Andrews. And Rich, we worked with him later at Radio Tokyo on the Descendants All record. And man, you know, some of the coolest things I think about his style and approach, he had nothing to do with this form of music. Right. His form of music was rhythm and blues huh. and soul music. Like, he had no idea. And to this day, I feel as though that's a lot of why the bass is as pronounced on those records as it is. Yeah. I think if, you know, because if you listen to the, the R&B of that era, mm-hmm. the bass is super loud, man. Right. And, and I think and, he kind of took that style on. And being a bassist, you know, I love it. I'm like totally stoked. And then, and then like shortly after you guys just dropped Live Edge, I was like, whoa, it was like, you already got another record. It was really cool. Just boom, boom. Yeah, but... But there was a thing, too, where we kind of knew that due to grad school and, and school aspirations that Milo, at some point or another, was going to have to go and pursue, you know, his master's and ultimately his doctorate. Right. So, you know, putting out as much stuff as possible, as fast as possible, was kind of, I think, important. That makes sense. Because I didn't know that. I mean, I didn't know. I knew he went to college, but or he was doing that, but I didn't know why that got pushed so fast. And then also... Shortly after Hall Ricker dropped out, it was another live record, and I was kind of surprised. And then all of a sudden, I heard you guys were done. I was like, what? <laughs> plus, plus, no, and the thing is, is a lot of the push for those records, too, was we sounded, I mean, we were having a lot of fun, and it was sounding really good. You know, everyone was really happy with the situation. And so when Milo left, there was the discussion of, like, you know, okay, what do we do about this? And the decision was arrived at that, we, you know, we will change the name and work a different singer you know there were a bunch of discussions it wasn't just one but you know we formed this idea of doing the band all and kind of moved on from there you know and i think a lot of it was simply you know bill stefan and i really enjoyed playing together right and we and by the way we could and the other thing is we could travel together in a van and not end up wanting to kill each other by the end of the tour so you know that's a good sign that's that's a good formula if you don't want to kill each other after being with each other that long that close yeah <laughs> well it worked it worked really well in the original when i joined the sentence because it kind of it was the dynamic was okay stefan and i have known each other since we were kids makes it easy we get along fine one way or the other we'll figure it out okay milo and bill have been best friends since high school so once again easy that's right. an easy connection totally. and then our road crew was daniel bugface snow and and gooch his buddy gooch from virginia and they were best friends since a very young age too so it was like three sets of best friends and it worked pretty well it was actually mm-hmm. very self-contained and kind of rad 
Bug ended up working with us. I mean, he he only stopped working with us a few years ago, uh, a few years ago, just due to health problems. So, uh-huh. but he was with us the whole time too. Did you guys um, try out singers, or did you just already pick Smalley? Like, was he like the guy? That well, you... I mean, Bill felt real strong about Smalley. I mean, because he had done Descendants with Doug and Ray, who somehow we forgot to mention along the way, which we probably should. Yeah, um, they did a tour with Dag Nasty. And Bill had nothing but good to say about Dave, you know, and that, you know, we should consider that. And Dave, as it turned out, just finished up doing some, I'm not sure what he was doing, some form of schooling out in Israel, of all things. And uh, and he came, and I think he literally came back from Israel, got off the plane and went straight to the practice room with us. Oh, wow. (laughs) You know, it wasn't, I mean, it was just sort of one of those like, okay, here's this guy, Dave. And we started working with him. Yeah, he's it was great. pretty seamless, actually, because I remember we played like some final Descendant show, and I think it was even someone's backyard party or something. Um, and then literally, you know, the d- next day, Dave came out to start work with us. Right. <laughs> it's kind of funny. But uh, then, then we did the all the stuff with Dave, and I, I don't think I feel bad for Dave because I don't think he was really aware of the level of touring that we were doing or we had in mind. Oh, okay. You know. I think that was really hard on him because, I mean, we at that time were, you know, attuned to the idea we are going to be on the road, you know, eight to ten months out of the year. And if you expect to maintain anything like a personal life or anything like that, it's a little bit of a world breaker, you know. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Dave. You know, I like Dag Nasty. I really loved Down By Law, you know, Punk Rock Academy fight song. That album just... Oh man, and you know Mark. You know Mark Phillips, the guitar player on that, now plays with Fishbone. No way, really. Yeah, man. Wow. No, Mark is no Mark is a dear friend, and man, that guy can play. Oh, they're great. Oh yeah. my god. Yeah. And now he's got the plum gig, man. I'm just so happy for him. You know, like yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. 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 I saw but, I saw Fishbone recently, a couple years back, open for. Uh, they played sec or second on a four band bill. It was with Reverend Horton Heat. Strung out and Fishbone went on second. They had an opener band. I was like, "What the hell?" And even Reverend Horton Heat was like, "Fishbone should have headlined the show." <laughs> yeah, no, because that's you know that's the consensus among musicians. Because I remember we played a show as all with them, where the lineup was. I think it was oh, it was in L.A. Uh, oh God, what was it? Uh, the venue will come to me, but it was us, Fishbone, and the Chili Peppers. Right. And we were just kind of at the time like, why isn't it us Chili Peppers and Fishbone? Exactly. <laughs> like, why we we all know who the best band in the house is. Definitely. Come on, man. Yeah, we're not fooling ourselves. <laughs> so you guys, you guys banged out Always Says, and then the next year you dropped uh, Always Revenge, and those were like, you know, for me it was kind of just a surprise because it was such a departure. Well, you from forgot All Right for Prez, which was the oh, EP in yeah, between. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But yeah, um, we squoze out a little EP in there. They've got to get the EP in there because it's really good. I have it. I own it. Yeah. <laughs> but then uh, you guys, it was just like boom, boom, boom. It was really quick, just like the last ones. And well, then, we were kind of trying to establish, you know, the band, basically. Right. You know? Because it was new. And that's, yeah. And the other, but, and we, you know, in good faith on those first bunch of tours, like God, for years. We resolutely did not play any Descendants material in the set. Was that weird? Well, no, not weird at all, because we were very confident in the material we had, you know, because, you know, 
but we were just trying to carve out an identity that was like, okay, this isn't all, or this isn't descendants. You can, you know, yeah. just accept it on its own merits. For sure. And that's, we wanted, we just kind of wanted to be honest about it, you know, accept it on its own merits. If you don't dig it, you don't dig it. That's beautiful. You know? Yeah, that's awesome. But, and then ultimately, of course, Dave, you know, the strains of the tour thing times, you know, every other craziness that was going on in the, that ear, dimly forgotten era, we ended up ha- ha- meeting another singer, and as luck would have it, it was kind of dumb. Scott Reynolds had a band called Three Car Pileup in Los Angeles uh, that some of our friends played with, and they practiced literally next door to us. Right. And so when the time came to, you know, oh, we need a new singer, it was actually really kind of basic. Like, you know, right. hey, Scott's next door. Let's have him try singing. Sure. You know? It was very organic, I guess. It's sort of funny. And so when you guys started playing with it, I mean, I I think my favorite album is always going to be Always Saves. That album just blew my mind the first time I heard it. Uh, of That's that, a weird one. Uh, yeah, it just, it, it's got so, it's so dynamic, you know, and that was, that was one of the things that really has so many hooks in it and it's really unique. From a, for, for all the other ones, I'd say my second favorite. We'll get to that later, but that's breaking things. But that's but. Not, I mean, that's <laughs> the thing about that record, and I think that's the the thing I think is good about that record is we were really trying to push some boundaries, you yeah. know. And I think the what I I guess like that record maybe is a, if it's me going to critique it, it's a little less focused than maybe it could have been. But the best part about putting out records is you know you can't take it back. Right. That's why they call it a release. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's it's got so many classic all songs on one record. Uh, you know, all the ones that you were that I remember are yeah. on that record. That one especially. And God, you know, and we were playing so much back then. I mean, we were a very, very, you know, very tight band at that yeah, moment. Big time. That was the that was kind of a, you know, it's it's fun to think back on just how much we practiced and toured. And, you know, none of us really have any formal training to speak of in music. So, you know, it was just kind of a really nice little thing where, like, in my memory at least, you know, this feeling of a music kind of gelling, mm-hmm. you know, with these with these guys I'm playing with. Man, yeah. And then... Um, plus plus I- Johnny Cash. There's a lot of Johnny Cash involved in those days. Hell yeah. And you guys also... Um- then after that, you did like a, I think you guys played with Tony Lombardo, right? He came back and did something. And you were on some vocals on that one, I think. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the thing about it is Tony only quit the band because there was no way he was going to be able to maintain the tour schedule. Okay. okay. Because he's a grown man. I mean, the thing about it is when Descendants formed, uh, Milo and Billy and Frank were all teenagers and Tony was a full grown man. And so basically as time moved forward, Tony had a job as a postman and it was a good job. And, you know, he had the adult responsibilities. He had his mortgage, he had all that stuff. So there was no way he could tour. And they uh, picked up Doug. I think his previous band was called Incest Cattle, which is another great thing that needs to be looked up if you're interested. Definitely. And and uh, Ray was, it's a long story that how these people fell into the orbit. And the tour schedule just kind of beat everyone down, you know. So I mean, you're, you're talking about Doug Carrion, right? The, the Doug Doug Carrion, yeah. yeah. Yeah, wasn't he in uh, for Love Not Lisa too? He was in for Love Not Lisa. Yeah, that band he's rocked. Done, that band was he's great. He's done a number of 
projects over the years. Right now he's doing, you know, a thing called Field Day, which is, you know, him and Pete from DAG doing a thing. Awesome. Very and cool. he's he's vital, man. I mean, that's the thing about Doug is, you know, you mentioned Enjoy earlier, and the sense of humor on that record, you know, <laughs> is purely <laughs> Doug Bourne. He is one of the funniest people you're ever going to hang out with. That's great. You know, and, uh, you know, I always, I, I always, I don't mean to ever downplay Doug, because I always bring up Tony, which brings us back to our thing. Tony Lombardo invented this weird style of, of hyperactive bass, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, he's really the, you know, man zero for a lot of this stuff, even though, you know, there's some stuff in the L.A. underground at the time that influenced him. I know there was a group called the Flyboys that he really liked the bass parts of. Okay. You know, but I mean, Tony, one of the first things is funny. When I hooked up with Bill and I brought up Tony, he did the logical thing and had Tony come out to the practice space and hang out with me and try to show me how to play some of these things. Oh, wow. You know? That's pretty cool. Yeah, because I was just like, oh, it's Tony Lombardo, man. Right. He's, he's, he's a great bass player. <laughs> and the other fun part was he also brought in this guy. Uh, he's sort of a lesser light, but uh, still amazing to me, a fellow named Bob Fitzer who played bass for Saccharin Trust. Rad who is an absolutely A-list, Jacob Astorius-level genius on bass. And Bill brought him in just to kind of show me some stuff that Tony couldn't. Oh, wow. Which I think is rad. Totally, right? like, yeah. So confident was he <laughs> that, <laughs> that I was worth it. <laughs> that, that sounds he, amazing. I mean, yeah, man, it was, it was really cool. And I, I there was a part of me at the time, to be real honest, I was just astounded that I was in this universe of, you know, all the SST players. Yeah. Because, you know, they were just, you know, I mean, not superheroes because they were, you know, that's the hallmark of our music is it was all quite human. Right. You know, but just that I was kind of, you know, playing in the same league with all these really, really great players, you know. Totally. Yeah, that was a thing to me because, you know, I, as most bass players are, I'm an ardent Minutemen fan. And, you know, Firehose had just started, so we did quite a bit of, you know, work over the years with those guys. And, man, I get, you know, man, I get to be in the same studio with Mike Watt, man. It's <laughs> <laughs> amazing. I had Des Kadena sing on my record. Fuck. You know, there's there's that element of, like, you know, young, just, oh, man, I'm so stoked. I'm in this, for lack of a better word, stable of musicians that are just, every one of them is just an ass kicker. Right. And then just, I mean... I love Black Flag, obviously, but Des was always my favorite singer. I don't know, just personally. Yeah, I just thought he was the best. That, that's my opinion, too. But, you know, you get the Black Flag you bring to the table because, right. I mean, Des, there's some stuff Henry did that Dezo could have never done. Right, for sure. You know, and I, I give it up for Henry, too, because, man, he is so the self-actualized man. Yep. I mean, totally. seriously, a guy who literally came from the same kind of weird sketchy i don't know what you call it cult market that we're in music punk rock whatever it is and he's carved out a career in so many different directions and you know he did it with willpower and at a certain level you have to respect that i respect a lot about henry rollins you know what i love about henry rollins and everybody kind of just gives you know hisses at me but i'm like i love his later records with black flag i thought there was some genius in there that people totally overlook uh, he was going for some weird dark views back yeah, then too. Like it was way it was weird. fun. <laughs> totally. And uh, you know, and he also had the weird thing of being, you know, this is kind of funny to talk about 
the straight edge guy adrift in the sea of weed smoking, you know, partiers. <laughs> totally. And that's, you know, and it's kind of fun that that's like, you know, the odd men out vibe that's there. But, you know, when I, when we were doing the Descendants All Tour, we did a significant part of the tour of the Southeast with the Rollins Band, which had just started up. Nice. And man, that band at that time, holy fuck, man, you could not touch them. They were so good. Yeah, they were great. Was that oh my was that on Lord. was that when they first started or was that on Do It? That's when they first started. That was uh, you know, it was the guys who played with Greg on the first Gone album. Yeah. Okay. Sam Kane and Andrew Weiss. Right. And man and Chris, the guitar player they brought in. Holy fuck, man. Fuck <laughs> we, yeah. We had and the problem was we were on tour because we were descendants, they would open for us. Right. And it was just, what a horrifying, <laughs> and it set a tone, man. Right. Like, it set a tone. We've got this thing where, like, you know, we'll have bands open for us, and most, a lot of the time, they're good enough that it, it's kind of work to get on stage after them. Yeah. You know? Totally. It's like, holy fuck. We, we just got, this last year, we toured with this group called Radkey. I don't know if you're aware of those guys. I've heard of them, but I haven't heard them, though. But they're, uh, yeah, they're, man, they're this three-piece from, you know, uh, Central, uh, Missouri and man, their thing—it's—it's it's like if there was an evolved form of the Misfits, it would be them. Awesome. And they're—they're they're, and it's like every day I hit the stage after I'm like, well, here I go. Okay, and I gotta win the stage back <laughs> after this bunch of twenty-year-olds just kicked my ass. Right. So, uh, you guys, after that, or was it? I think it was Percolator that came next, right? Uh, let me see, Sibs, yeah, Percolator. Then we just moved to Missouri. That's what that record kind of is. Gotcha. And that that was like when you guys were like really getting different. I mean, it was it sounded like you had all these like different styles you were kind of pulling from. It was a little bit more oh, mellower. Yeah, it was it was a weird time too because you know there was no real scene to speak of in oh, LA. Oh, oh, I have a, I have a correction. Okay, I screwed oh. up. I screwed up. Um, okay. Alroy Saves is not my favorite. My bad. Alroy's Revenge is my favorite. I just got the names mixed up because I was looking at the wrong one. Revenge has some good shit on it. That's, that's, that's my amazed it's as good as it is. That's I'll my favorite. Okay, I got it wrong because I said it earlier. It was Saves. It's Alroy's Revenge is the best. My favorite album. Next to there's a fair bit of magic on that record. Yeah, I'm not dude. sure it's, how we hit it, but we man, that was some cool stuff. That one killed. I mean, all yeah. of it. She's my ex. Well, all those songs. Well, are it's just, just how seamlessly Scott fell in there, and you know, created this personality. And he's, you know, the one thing he has, I think, over any of the singers that we've worked with, is he's really a storyteller. Yeah. You know, and my God, you know, that's the thing about that. When yeah. you listen to Box, for example, which is his tune, mm -hmm. you know, he's telling literally the story of living on the bottom shelf of a rack of bunks in Lomita, California. Wow. You know, That's crazy. I live in a box. I live on a one-way street. It happened to be literally true. Yeah. There's and not a lot of art to it. His lyrics are great. Carnage, those lyrics are awesome. Oh, that's Bill. That's Bill's one, and man, that one. Oh, okay. yeah, it's, a, it's a heart terror. Yeah, and that one, I remember that one was, uh, you know, I, if I remember right, when Scott finished the final scream on that thing, I think he did in fact vomit. Oh shit! So you know, <laughs> wow. Because well, yeah, go ahead. You know, I'm just saying, like, you know, the process of recording this stuff. You know, you try for the raddest sound, and sometimes, well. 
when you push a singer to the limit, eventually something's got to give. <laughs> you know? But yeah, that album just still gives me chills when I hear it. It's it's my whole scene that I hung with when that album came out. We were all about it, you know, full, scary, sad, you know, all this uh, Hot Rod Lincoln covers, badass, you know. It you was, know the weirdest, the weirdest thing about a lot of this material, and Bill probably will kill me for this at some point over it if he <laughs> is aware of the interview, but. uh you know, it's not a joke. We used to bring the ukulele on tour with us in the van. Right. So, you know, just to have something to play, you know, to while the time. So a lot of that really insanely complicated guitar part on Scary Sad was written on ukulele. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I mean, you know, it's what we had. Right. And, and, and jumping back to Always Saves, I do. I, I, okay, I like the song Just Like Them because that one's like, that's Milo's, and yeah. you know, I, I always felt like that was sort of a bit of a riff with him and his dad. You know, there's a lot of that in there. Sure. But, I mean, boy, what a great tune. Yeah. You know, I mean, Super we recorded good. it a bunch of different times. So, That's how good it is. So did he just write that, and you already knew it, you just threw it on the album, or was it? Um, he, I don't think Milo ever really stopped writing songs. Okay. And even, and even when he went away to grad school, he had a band called Milestone, I never it, saw that or heard about it. That that contained a lot of really good, you know, players in that band. And but they just, you know, they I think they put out a limited amount of stuff and then Milo went away to Madison, Wisconsin went to get his doctorate and that was the end of that band. But Milo never really stopped writing. Right. You know, he always has stuff he seems to always have stuff sitting around. I think, you know, for him it's uh one of the more interesting things about his approach to music is it's very much an outlet for him. You know, sure. his day-to-day -day life is very much science. Yep. So it takes a lot of art to offset that, you know? So, so Percolator, you know, we're back to Percolator and your vibe was like totally different from All Wars Saves. Actually, All Wars Saves was a little weird, like you said. And then this one got super mellow. I mean, Minute is like probably the, the more like kind of quintessential all song on the record, but a lot of them are really strange. Just the, yeah. the the way you guys we, are going. Well, we become bored with certain conventions. Sure. Of what this music was supposed to be, and you know, and along with you know mix habits and the way people were playing, Stefan at that time was I think uninterested in sounding like a conventional rock guitar player on any level. Right. Which I can totally respect. You know, that's he he wanted to carve his own thing out. So there's a lot less power chord you know, the stuff we know about punk rock on his part. And, you know, on my part, I don't know, man, I'm a weird dude. A <laughs> bunch of weird stuff. But, uh, and also, you know, the bands we were playing around at the time were things like No Means No. Right. And, you know, this terrific band from the Northwest that one of these days is going to get their due called My Name. My Name? Yeah. And, you know, these were the guys that were kind of the people we were around. Right. And, so it colors a vibe also during that that was the gap between okay saves we released then we moved to missouri and not just missouri we lived in a small town in missouri with four thousand people in it wow we moved the band out there because it was economically more feasible to yes. do it so the isolation i think maybe might have created the weirdness on that record sure you know? right just because we were in the middle of nowhere man <laughs> there was there was nothing uh you know, no, there was no music scene. There was a little farm town. And and, and you didn't have internet back then. <laughs> oh, no, there was, you know, there was none of that stuff, you know, and it was really, part of the decision to move there was honestly, 
At the time, the recording studio that we were preferring to use was one called Ardent down in Memphis, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. And it made it a lot easier to go to Ardent. Right. You know, because okay. we, were, we weren't that far. Also, at the time, we were touring a lot. So it was kind of like, well, we might as well be in the center of the country. Then we divide the country into quadrants. Right. And then come back home, you know? Yeah, so it's easier. Yeah, but ultimately, living in that town, it was a great experiment. And it's the reason we ended up living there was Bill's father had been raised there and bought a house there when he went back on this high school reunion. And we rented that house from him. And it was considerably less than we were paying for a practice space in L.A. Because, I mean, we were kind of slowly going broke in L.A. because it was so expensive to live there. Gotcha. Now, uh, what happened with uh, Scott Reynolds leaving at that point? We just I just never knew the story. Oh, God, man, we were touring super hard and like, you know, neck deep in the thing. He and I had some some personal issues at one point. But I mean, honestly, the ultimate thing I can think is the lifestyle we were living is not one that most people are suited for. And I think Scott had plans and I think those plans involved a family and kids and a life. And also, I think and I think this is real true. As a songwriter, it's kind of weird for him because, you know, he always drew very heavily from his work day. You know what I mean? His day-to-day work guy thing. That was his his thing for music. And once he started playing full-time with us, he didn't have much to draw on except for the band. So I think, you know, part of his thing was I just would like rather tour half as much and work a normal job. Right. Whereas the rest of us were like, no, we will be on the road. <laughs> there we will be all. <laughs> we will eat the squat food. You yeah. know, what I mean, it was, it, it's, we were very much, I mean, it's a weird thing to talk about now because it's, I think back now and it's like, man, what a really bad place to put a bunch of people. Right. And, you know, we, we made amendments too. Cause you know, at one point I married and my wife traveled with us and, you know, Bill married and his wife traveled with us and we, we made amendments to try to get around this issue, which is. I don't know, kind of to me, really basic, which is if you want to have a home, you've got to make a home. Right. Just you make, know? Yeah, make it how it goes. And so uh, where did you find um, Chad from? Because that guy's oh, awesome. Oh, that's, that's one of my favorite things. Okay, we had stayed at his and his friend's houses on multiple trips through Kansas City. And he had a friend's band called Curious George that were the opener on one or two of the gigs. And we just kind of knew him as this guy out in Missouri. So when we moved out there, him and his friends came and were hanging out with us, you know, get us acclimated. And so we'd go fishing with Chad and hang out. And he had a band called Apple Tree at the time. And there was, uh, uh, we threw some party out at a friend's barn in Missouri. And his band Apple Tree came out and it was like, we're listening to this guy sing and we're like, wow. He really knows how to sing. Yeah. And it was one of those, and his guitar player at the time, uh, Roy Anderson, who's still a friend of ours, um, looked over at me and just kind of gave me the silent up nod, like, yeah, check it out, (laughs) you know? So when Chad left, there was a thing. I mean, Bill actually went out to LA and we auditioned a number of people to try to see if there was someone who, you know, an interesting approach, someone who had an idea. Because, I mean, it's very frustrating, right? We've been through a number of singers. And ultimately, we went with Chad. He was the first guy who auditioned, and his tape sounded the best. Yep. 
you know, and he just brought in a vibe that we really liked and God, that, and what he's done since then, Jesus, you know, he's good. I mean, he's really good. I saw you guys on breaking things and, uh, it was at the Berkeley square. Uh, I think it was, uh, probably like, I want to say 93, maybe 94. I can't remember, but it was really good. And he just jumped out and just fell right into Scott's role and he killed it. And you, your whole band did. And I noticed you did, you were singing parts of this, of this album that I didn't see you sing that much before in the past, but you were all over it. It was great watching you play. Well, bass you know, and Chad is, I, and I cannot, I really can't see enough. I mean, Chad was this fucking diamond, right. you know, that was just sitting there in the middle of Missouri, you know, like, <laughs> like, and, and by the way, you know, he probably, with or without us, he might've found his way. I mean, subsequently he's done, you know, drag the river. He's done his solo acoustic stuff. Uh-huh. Now he's got his band of vulture wake, which is, you know, just an all-star cast of guys just kicking ass. Yeah, he's he's got that perfect like raspiness to his voice, but oh. it sounds clean though. Like you can hear it perfectly. Uh, and he's got, and he's, you know, I, th- I like to think a voice reveals a lot about a person. You know. Oh yeah, and, yeah, sure. And you know, you hear when you hear his voice, you hear someone who's got a real big heart. And yeah. that's the, I guess, my takeaway on Chad. You know. And, and breaking things, I thought was just a big crushing record compared to to percolator was just so much more intense you guys had went right back to like kind of a heavy rock sound just raw it was really loud and abrasive yeah, I, I, I think it was funny I, and once again you know back to stefan as a you know one of the central things in this between the between the uh, percolator record and breaking things stefan rediscovered his love for the bar chord Right. Yeah. And, you know, and so you'll, you started hearing, you know, maybe more ACDC and Motorhead creeping in. Totally. You know, because, you know, that was the thing. And I get it. Cause like I said before, he didn't want to sound like any other guitar player, but then at the same time, if you're a guitar player at all, man, there's nothing more satisfying than playing a really big, badass bar chord through a distorted amp. Yeah. It feels super good. Yeah, it, 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 it seemed like Chad yes. Chad jumped in and you guys were just recharged. And I remember hearing, I mean, just right out of the original me, me, I was just, boom. It was just, you put on the oh, record, man. it sounds like it's already cranked up. Just the recording and, alone. And the surprising amount of that song, Chad wrote specifically. Oh, wow. The I music? Mean, I mean, not the bass part, the guitar parts, definitely. Oh, shit. I mean, he was very, you know, a very fully realized, you know, songwriter at that point. Right. He actually knew what he was kind of after. And it, that was the thing that tripped us out. Yeah, that, and he also tapped into, you know, all of our latent fondness for country music. Nice. Because, you know, most of us were raised with it. So, you know, Chad brought that part out with us. But, I mean, when you when you go down that album, I mean, just right out of the bat, then, you, like, Cause is really good. Bail, Let's Bail. You know, that's so good. And then I remember all the songs are great. Then I... I literally read the lyrics for Birthday IOU and I had like fucking tears streaming down. I was like, fuck, talk about hitting me in the gut. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's what Bill's the best at. I mean, no, seriously, Bill is the king of that stuff. Yeah, I was brutally honest and real and I was like, dude, this is hard, hard shit. Yeah, he, he, I mean, he's that's sort of his songwriting, you know, uh, hallmark is... Yeah that emotional like gut punch thing yep. <laughs> uh you know birth i mean birth the iou is only one of them but you know 
www.sarah. There's all kinds of yeah, ones. They're totally. just just brutal. And I, uh, God, right. <laughs> and even down to you know the Lemonheads record. You know he has his track on that. Steve's boy is pretty amazing. Yeah. Like, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, no, I'm just saying, like he, he's his songwriting kind of. That's his his stock and trade is. He says the one thing you're thinking, and only he removes all the uh, filter on it. You know? Exactly. That's exactly well well articulated. I mean, my well, I always read your guys' lyrics, and every now and then my hairs go up, and I'm just like, God damn, these guys are as real as fuck. And talking about real well, shit. Well, a lot of the whole, and only, you know, only in the past few years did we figure out kind of what you'd call what the lyric is, which is, it's kind of first-person nonfiction. Right, exactly. With the exception of Chad, and Chad, like I said, he's a storyteller. So, you know, right. he can get, he can watch a movie and get a good song lyric out of it, you know? Right. And then you guys, like, you guys went over to Pummel, and you did that record, and this was like way, it wasn't much different because the style was still there. It still had the brace of guitars, it was cleaner, because I think you guys were it, we were on a different label, right? Interscope. Yeah, Did but you, we were it was we were using the same studio. We we're just kind of learning as right. we went, you but, know. But the and, overall vibe was like a lot darker. I noticed. Yeah, but that's when you know darkness crept in a little bit in our band. You okay. know, I mean, my own personal. I mean, I'm I am the first to admit I am a uh, mentally and emotionally unstable person. Okay. And I am manic depressive and I am prone to depression. And when it gets bad, it can get very bad. Right. So you have songs like This World or Broken. Yeah. And that's that's my own, you know, thing. And fortunately, music has existed as an outlet for me. Right. Well, that's a good so thing. It doesn't mean things haven't gotten messy over the years. You know? <laughs> right. Who wrote Stalker? Because that album, that song is awesome. That's Chad's bit of business, and I've always felt a little a little ambivalent about it. I mean, obviously, like, I can't endorse the idea of stalking. Right. But if you're looking at it from the standpoint of it's a horror movie. Exactly. That's how I took you know, it. Right. Which is how he would, you know, how he wrote it. I mean, you know, he's one of those guys. He's a big fan of that sort of thing. I, I thought it was an amazing bit of music, you know. Mm-hmm. And then uh, that's at that, po- at that point, you guys were rolling. I mean, all was just in full steam. Well, it was weird, man. Like, uh, being on a major label was a weird thing because, okay, now we have an A&R guy. Now we have, and it was weird, but that was the 90s, right? Like, right. suddenly everyone had a record contract with someone. Punk is just huge at this point. Yeah, and, you know, we, they, I think the, I think Interscope signed us assuming we were going to, like, you know, do something, I don't know, Green Day-esque man. or something. And instead, they got this really dark, horrible record. <laughs> so, <laughs> I wouldn't say horrible, so, but yeah, it was I mean, dark. But a fun, one of the fun trivia about that record that I really like is that the record cover was done by Mackie Osborne, who is Buzz from the Melvins' wife. Oh, wow. And I, I find that fun because, you know, we have a relationship with the Melvins that goes back a real, real long time since no one knew what to do with a bill. They just kind of put us both on the bill because, you know, neither one of us drew for shit. But between the two of us, we could fill a room. Right. <laughs> so we have a long background with those guys. And it's really funny to me. It's like that Buzz's wife got to do the major label release cover. Yeah, it's just a picture of a four by four, a big old truck, like a but monster there's truck. A little comment, there's a little commentary on living in Missouri, you know. Yeah. Because at that time we were transitioning that we were, uh, you know, trying to figure out where we wanted to be that wasn't Missouri. 
Right. We had trouble with the Elroy Saves t-shirts, to be honest. Like, uh, to find someone in Missouri willing to do it who didn't think it was sacrilegious was difficult. Who did it? Because it's a crucifix, right? Right, you know, yeah, yeah. Who, who did that? Thing. And, uh, I did the drawing. Oh, you did the drawing? Nice. I did the, I did the graphics for the first bunch of records. Yeah, that's and, badass. And, I always wondered. And then I... And then I submitted to the greater prowess of Chris Sherry, who has done our graphics ever since. Nice. Yeah, she did and the uh, Nerf Herder and all that stuff. It's it's a he, but yeah. Oh, he sorry. Did. My bad. You know, he does, no, he does all kinds of stuff. He's Chris, a very, okay, very you. extremely talented and motivated guy. Like, in the past few years, it's been funny because we do, you know, now because of whatever uh, machinations are going on, we do event-specific specific T-shirts. Uh-huh. And every town we go to, he manages to come up with something that is very local. And I think it's really cool because the local kids get to have their thing. It's more of an artifact. Right. You know, and the funniest one for me was we're playing Grand Rapids, Michigan. Right. We're trying to figure out, okay, Grand Rapids, Michigan. What's a local thing for Grand Rapids, Michigan that we can do? What's the thing? We couldn't come up with a damn thing. I think he ended up doing some about a, a Calder sculpture that was down, downtown. And we walk into the airport in Grand Rapids and there's a banner right in front of us. Welcome to Grand Rapids, hometown of duct tape. <laughs> <laughs> and we're like, how did we miss that? That's great. How did, it's the hometown of duct tape. Jesus Christ, man, what the hell is wrong with us? That's awesome. You, yeah, but no, Chris is Chris is really the man. You know, there's and there's a number of different artists over the years that we associate with that are, you know, just I I am really super impressed because once again they've been around since we were all kids doing this and they're still doing it. Uh, I this is a sort of sideways way for me to bring up this guy Brian Walsby. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Yes, I know Brian. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's great. and like he's just a nonstop perfect commentator and all around good dude and graphic artist mm-hmm. within this scene. He's still killing it. Oh fuck yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, so that's the other thing. This whole scene is just so weird, man. We made friends like 30 years ago, and all our friends are still doing stuff. It's nuts. So, what was the transition between um, Interscope and Epitaph? Like, um, that was a couple uh, of years later, right? Well, it was we. Okay, we were on Interscope, and at some point during the release period, our A and R guy vanished, and we didn't know what became of him. Oh wow! And basically, um, make a long story short, the Interscope kind of screwed up their side of the contract. Okay. So we bowed out of Interscope and they gave us, you know, the way that things worked back then, they gave us a bunch of money. Sure. And uh, Mr. Brett, uh, I guess, got wind of it and just got a hold of us. And the, I, the weird thing about it was, was Mr. Brett called Bill about the all thing. And Milo called Bill literally 10 minutes later about like, hey, I kind of want to maybe do some more recording. Fuck yeah. <laughs> so it, as t- things worked out, we ended up doing the Everything Sucks record. Yes. That was, uh, I remember when that dropped and we were like, holy shit, Descendants got a new record out. And we, everybody was waiting for it. We got it and it did not disappoint in any way. That thing was just well, monstrous. I was just happy we got, you know, everyone in on the, in on the gig. I mean, we got Frank in there that his song Doghouse to me is still, you know, one of the purest forms of Frank. If you knew the guy at all, Frank Nevetta was a remarkable person 
And his songwriting approach is something that you just can't imitate because it's born of just a profound and deep resentment. Sure. <laughs> and it's an amazing thing. Like his, oh man, it's sad because he's gone now. But right. man, he, there was something about the way he played and his general attitude that was just irreplaceable, man. There would have been no descendants Milo goes to college without that guy. Totally. Yeah, that's, he's a—he's just such a contrarian person, you know. I mean, he came in for the first recording sessions for Everything Sucks with a weird, like Kramer guitar strung with all manner of crazy different gauges of strings, and plugged in and started playing. And after about five minutes, Bill's like, "So, Frank, uh, are you gonna play the song, or are you just gonna do what you've been doing?" <laughs> and Frank said, and he had a really funny high voice. He said. So you just want me to do the thing? <laughs> and Bill's like, yeah, Frank, I want you to do the thing. Okay, I'll do the thing. And he picked up the normal guitar and started playing. But it was like, he, even to that late point, he was like, no, man, I'm going to make this thing into something that no one's ever heard before. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, so. Strain oh, wonderful person. Whoops. Hold on. Did I go through Nice. I was just I was just scrolling through your songs because there's so many hits on this one that I just love, and uh, yeah, everything sucks. I was like, when I first heard that song, I had that was one of those ones where I had fucking goosebumps. I was just like, holy shit, the fucking Descendants are back and they're pissed. Like it was great. Well, the best thing about that to me was Stefan's involvement because that was one of his. Yeah. The, you know that was you know he brought in the music for that. And, you know, a lot of the lyrical inspiration was kind of his thing. He, yeah. was, he, he kind of pointed me and pointed Bill in certain directions. Okay. You know, about what the song was going to be. But, I mean, yeah, everything sucks. I mean, that, that's, that, it's, it's a universal. Right. And I feel like the best punk rock kind of does that. You know, it's like something that deals with something absolutely universal. Totally. Yeah, it's not just limited. I mean... It goes down the list. I mean, I'm the one. When I first heard that one, I was like, dude, this is this is Descendants. Like, it's, it's hardcore, pure. It's back because it was gone uh, for so long. <laughs> that one, there's a story associated with that, which is um, there was a place when we first moved to Colorado, there was a place in downtown Fort Collins that was a loft that a bunch of kids lived in the way you could back then. And they threw a party one night, and our roadies band, Bill the Welder, played the show. And they had a great guitar player, uh, Tim McLaughlin, and he's passed away by now. And he was one of the old school guys, man, like, you know, 70s rock guy. Nice. But he really, man, that guy so knew how to play and his tone was perfect. And I was at that show and I came home from that show and I sat on the couch and I was like, no one's ever going to hear that guy. <laughs> and it seemed, you know, and it was one of those things like yes. <laughs> no one's ever going to hear that guy. I got to right. write a thing. So I'm the one I wrote in 15 minutes sitting on the couch and I threw in things where like a few different friends of mine had been going through romantic dilemmas, you know, at that time about, you know, being the, I guess, I don't know, nowadays maybe you call it friend zone, but I think yeah, in totally. these guys' cases, it was more like, just kind of like, you know, I watch you make all it, as a friend, I'm watching you make a bunch of mistakes and I want to help you out. So I kind of tried to write a song for other people. Right. You know, it wasn't for me at the time. I was happily married. Uh -huh. That's great. But it's, uh, but you know, it's one of those ones where it's like, I really, it was 15 minutes on the couch and it kind of worked. Yep. And then, uh, 
Wow, this this album just is so loaded. I mean, sick of me. I'm just gonna skip down to a couple ones that stick out to me. Uh, you know, even even we that that song is just such a like a grabber. It's another grabber. Like we can get past all this shit. You know, just really. That's Milo's, and that's boy, what a what a great thing, right? Yeah, that one's I that's mean, a grabber. It just totally grabs you. Yeah, you know, and Milo's. I don't want to downplay him, obviously, because you know he's the guy that albums are named after and whatnot. <laughs> he's the man. But uh, <laughs> you know, he really has a knack for uh, for hitting the emotional nail on the head. You know, yep. like whatever you're trying to feel at a given moment, he's got a song for it. Right. You know, and it's like, though, honestly, for me, when Milo's really, really pissed off, that's kind of one of my favorite Milo's. <laughs> well, that, you know, I get to say, you know, going back to the beginning, Milo Goes to College was mine and my friend's soundtrack to high school. That I mean, everything he talked about, we were living that. And it, well, I remember. I remember when and Stephen brought brought the album home because we had our you know shitty little punk rock crash pad that we had right. at the time. I remember when Stephen brought that record home. It was one of those ones that you know stayed on the turntable for weeks. Yeah, wouldn't even leave because there was just so much there you know to digest, and we already were familiar with the singles and the compilations that already filled us in on a little bit of what they were about, but we had no idea and when bill joined black flag there was a weird part of all of us that was like hooray bummer right <laughs> you know like hooray bill joined black flag so black flag's got you know robo's gone but man you got bill stevenson on drums and black flag that's fucking great. oh wait descendants right don't exist now exactly uh it was weird uh well i mean and the weird thing about it to me is we were just so tuned into it even though, you know, like you said, no internet, whatever, but we were aware of the developments. Right. You know, like, oh man, that's, that's great, but that kind of sucks. Right. I remember like just when, when you guys dropped everything sucks and that's when I just ran out to see you guys. I can't remember exactly where you played. I think it was in San Francisco or maybe Santa Cruz. And I was just, yeah, we were all eyes were on descendants and it was just really fun. And then, um, then you guys like just disappeared. It just went right back to all. I was like, "Hey, <laughs> what happened? <laughs> where did where well, it go?" I mean, it, you know, it's one of those things. The tour schedule that we kept for everything sucks was very grueling. And back to the same old thing I was talking about earlier, where you know, people who aren't used to it, and at that point, me and Bill and Stefan were that was our life. That was completely normal. Uh, people aren't used to it. It's very hard on them. And at the time, I got to say, it was a lot easier for me than it was for Milo because, you know, my wife was our road manager. We toured together. Nice. You know, we we lived together. And Bill's Bill's girlfriend was our, you know, T-shirt girl. Uh-huh. So, you know, for us, being on the road was very, not that different than being home. But I feel for Stefan and I feel for Milo because, you know, they were out on the road on their own for, I mean, I think we were on the road in the release period there, I mean, we did 16 months on the road for that record. And I think at the end of that, Milo was like, you know what? The rap's <laughs> looking a little bit better nowadays. <laughs> so. Yeah, you guys crushed. And and we were just all like, how are they going to follow that album up? It's just insane. And then all of a sudden, well, my mass nerder's back. And I think it kind of, it, it was just bad because... Not bad in a way, but you know, it just kind of got overshadowed, so it didn't get the popularity I thought it should have. But it was a great album too, you know. Oh man, there's you know, it's it's one of those things. Uh, through good times or bad times, we just release stuff, and sometimes 
the climate's more favorable for us than sure. others. And I, I, you know, I think that everything sucks benefited from that whole nineties climate where, yeah. you know, almost anything went right. as far as music went. Like, I mean, let's face it, the butthole surfers did Lollapalooza, you know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, Jesus Christ. <laughs> How wide open is that? Yeah, but you, you got to give them credit though. When they dropped uh, Electric Larry Land, that album blew well, dude, my mind. I, no, I I adore that band. Right. That's actually one of my one of these days. Not this not this interview, but at some point we'll talk about the virtue or vice of having two drummers in a band. Definitely, I'd love to have that conversation. You know, but I mean, yeah, I know. But the fact that the Butthole Surfers actually saw a certain amount of commercial success in that era <laughs> tells you everything about what that era was, which was kind of off the hook. I, I thought it was kind of a dying, the last dying gasp of the music industry as it was understood. Right. You know, but I mean, it was fueled by, you know, economic good times, relatively. Sure. I mean, that's, that's one of those things. And, you know, for once in my life, I mean, it was weird in the late 70s and early 80s because the 70s old guard did not want to relinquish their grasp on the culture, man. No, not You know, they had gone to the trouble of, you know, okay, you will listen to the Led Zeppelin and that, and you will be happy with it. Right. The who are goddamn gods, accept it. And there was a whole bunch of young guys that got just kind of washed under by that, you know, the, the thing. And I don't want to go for that okay boomer thing because technically I am a boomer, but there was a bit of that where like, you know, they only really were interested in the music that their generation had produced. You know, you, and can, you can say that. On top of that, the punk rock bands, you know, the early punk rock bands were so kind of dysfunctional. Right. I'm not surprised that the industry got tired of dealing, you know? Right. It's like, I mean, between the heroin, in the case of the New York Dolls, and Sex in the case of... Iggy and all that. I mean, between that and just, I mean, it's just, they proved to be more of a pain in the ass than their record sales were worth. Right. And it was really sad because in the mix, there's guys like the Buzzcocks who were earnest and trying hard. <laughs> guys right. like the Damned that were trying real hard. Yeah. God, totally. when I saw the Damned a couple of years ago at, at the uh, punk rock bowling thing, that was one of my favorite things I've ever seen in my life was uh, seeing the damn just do their thing and realize, no, we were right all along. These guys are fucking A-list yep. players. You know, every player in that band is fucking badass. That is awesome. You know, so happy to see them. I'm actually, I'm stoked right now because I'm listening to what my wife's playing in the background and she's playing Curtis Mayfield. So nice. life's good. Hey, Calamity got good taste. So you guys, you after, after, See, so you guys dropped Problematic, and that was pretty cool. I just listened to that one today. And then um, I think it was uh, was it Live Plus One, and that was kind of like you did a bunch of different songs. From, yeah, that was kind of the, the all-inclusive, right? Right, like a best of kind of. Yeah, and that was fun because it was at a venue that we all kind of drank at. You know, that was our watering hole in Fort Collins, the Starlight. Was that? Know? So it was very very down home where we recorded that was that released um i'm not well, i'm not talking about problematic i'm talking about live plus one was that the live plus one yeah it was this, recorded live was that descendants and all on the same night uh not on the same night okay but we, uh but we did a whole thing where it was a bunch of bands over a series of nights and we recorded the all of the descendant sets including the original lineup you know or the as close to it as we could get which is you know tony sure. and frank and and bill and milo that's sick but yeah we, we did you know we recorded a lot and that was a, one of the ones for me which was kind of 
a personal best because during that particular thing, which was called stockage, I managed to play in Descendants and All and The Last and two of my own bands over the course of a single weekend. <laughs> so that's like the most productive I've ever been in my life. That is amazing. How do your fingers keep up? Do you get do you have to pop your knuckles or anything? <laughs> well, to be fair, in one of the bands I was singing, so I didn't have to, you know, that wasn't it. Nice. But I did sleep, I did in fact sleep under the drum riser one night just to, you know, be there for sound check. Wow. But that was kind of more of a wank at the time. I mean, honestly, I was at that point I was recently divorced and I really had, you know, nothing other than my shitty little apartment. So I was kind of maybe overdoing the rock and roll theater thing. Gotcha. So uh, eventually you guys did get back together and you dropped yes. a Cool to Be You, which I was really excited for because I was like, all right, cool. Maybe they can start putting some stuff out now. And it was a little different from see Everything Sucks. It sounded, it actually sounded different from all too. It had its own vibe. Definitely. It was, we recorded that. Um, that was really weird because like, you know, there's this uh, thing they talk about in music where like, everyone in the same room recording at the same time yeah we did that that oh. was what that record was oh, okay. it was literally you know very much that and sadly we couldn't ever really tour to promote that one right uh milo's dad died there was it was a whole nexus of weird bad shit that made us not be able to tour on that and i always felt a little bit bad about that yeah that sucks we never got to trot that stuff out and you know show people what it really was but you know then you and somewhere in there, and so after that, you know, we're not touring on Everything Sucks because of this. I ended up taking gigs that came my way, which brings us to the next chapter of our story, which is I did a summer playing with the band Google Bordello, which I think it was wonderful. I learned a lot. It was it was cool. And then uh, later, Lemonheads and Bill and I did the last record. Uh, my point is, during that weird dead period yeah. in the 2000s, uh, Bill and me kept working. Nice. <laughs> we just, Bill kept working the studio and, you know, managed to put in great records from all kinds of bands. There's a band we did back then that I got called the last minute, come in and do some backup vocals for, and they became one of my favorite things, which I, they're playing out now again, but uh, the band is called Audio Karate. Are you aware of them? No, I'm not, but I'll look them up for sure. Okay, and they're East L.A. guys, and they have this record called Lady Melody that I sang some of the backups for. And when I got done singing those backups, I could not get their songs out of my head for the rest of the month. Oh, so they're like it super was, hooky? And better than that. Like, like what is just, just Ear, Earworms? Earworms? Are they getting stuck yeah, in there? Yeah, no, these, these, and we brought them out this last year with us when we were doing tour the last time, you know, people could tour. Did you write that down? Um, okay, cool. <laughs> Audio Karate, Lady Melody. It's it's such an essential record, man. Definitely. It's like I feel about that the way I do about those old SST records. Nice. You know, sure. it's just one of those ones like you kind of, if you're a fan of this shit, you got to hear that. Definitely. I'm stoked. So, but yeah, so there was all kinds of activity going on, but a lot of it was studio based. Right. And um, yeah, you guys, did, <clears throat> you guys didn't put out like as far as Descendants All or anything, you didn't put anything out till like 2016 with the, uh, the Hypercafium Spazinate. Yeah, and that was that. That was a fun one too, because we just you know came back to it. And honestly, the weirdest thing is not that much had changed. You know, right? Maybe we had a better ear for production. Sure. Did you guys? Uh, do you guys? Do you toured for that? Didn't you? 
Oh, of course. Like yeah. nonstop. Right. Like, I think three years of my life. <laughs> For that one record? Yeah, but I mean, you know, it was fun to be out on the road because like I was talking about earlier, and I didn't need to oversell the thing of like, God, it's horrible being on tour, God, because that's such oh. a cliche rock and roll kind of vibe to take. But it was hard on everyone. And by the time we did for, uh, you know, for hypercaffeinium, everyone had their families and they had their home lives. And going out on tour is more of a thing of like we, you know, me and Bill take the truck out to the airport, check in with our sound man. We go out, fly out to wherever we're at. Milo and Stefan meet up with us. We sound check. It's fun. You know, we actually really, it's taken it from a thing of like, we used to work our asses off at this so that now that we're, you know, older, we can fly out and enjoy it, you know, and genuinely enjoy the whole process of it. Of like, man, we're in, because a couple of years ago, we went to China, man, you know? That's crazy. <clears throat> and all the way to China with this stuff. And, and that's that's crazy stuff, especially, you know, I mean. Well, what was it like playing China? Well, you know, the red flags were everywhere. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, no, uh, it was really cool. The scene there is existent, but the government does have a certain amount of say about it. And, you know, the ministers of culture were definitely in the balcony when oh, we wow. played. That's crazy. And, and, was but, it intimidating? And, no, nah, not so much. I mean, there's a surprising amount of expatriates from the UK and America who hang out primarily in like Shanghai. Okay. So we there were quite a few of them. And honestly, you know, the Chinese are just fucking people. Sure. And they got ex and some of the bands were good. Some of the bands were, you know, challenging. But it was all all just kind of just a whole other world of how people relate to the things. And it's good to throw yourself into that. Yeah, you know? I, I don't judge people by their governments. <laughs> no, man. No, right. no, no, man. And that's the, I guess that's my takeaway too. Totally. Because you know, at, at one point I forgot the other chapter and there's somewhere in there I ended up playing, which is appropriate to forget. I ended up playing with the real McKenzie's. Why is that appropriate for, to forget? Because of the drinking, my friend. Oh. I mean, <laughs> it's the real McKenzie's. I love that band. And, and I was like, I, what? No, I, I adore them. Right. And I played with them for about two years. And barely broke even you know, all time. You know, I remember I, myself enormously. I do remember you know, when, when you joined that band. I, I remember oh, that now. God. Okay, yeah. two thousand. I want to say two thousand and seven or eight. Yeah, maybe something like that. Right. But man, we made a record in Berlin, and you know, it, it, and I got to work with Dave Gregg from DOA, which to me was like, you know, that's no small thing. Right. You did, know, you, did you rock a kill? And yeah, of course I did for almost two years. <laughs> and, awesome. uh, and on and off stage, honestly, I found the thing super convenient. <laughs> you know, it, 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 I really didn't mind the kill. I actually felt like that was one of the, I'm sorry, I'm walking in the kitchen, we're playing the dam. Um, awesome. But uh, you can hear it. It's just can't be happy. It's all good. Yeah, it's okay. My, like I said, it's a house from the thirties. The rooms are small. <laughs> so we, I just I just had to ask about the kill. Did, did you go commando like the singer? Well, there are tools <laughs> in the real Mackenzie's, and one of them is no heroin, and the other one is no underwear. <laughs> uh, other than that, uh, you're pretty much on your own. You know that is great. <laughs> so yeah, and so honestly, and it's one of those weird, you know, how barroom bragging rights exist in the world. Yeah. So one of the ones I've got is I'm one of the only people you've ever met. 
who toured Russia in the winter wearing no pants. <laughs> that is great. Wow. So, but no, that was such a great fun. And I, and I was following up, I was following up little Joe and Jesus Christ, how do you follow up little Joe Raposo? You know, oh, oh, man. Jesus fucking God. So honestly, I did the only same thing a bass player could do. I simplified all the bass parts. There you go. Because it's like, <laughs> I can't, I ain't going there, man. <laughs> he's all over the place, yeah. Sure. Um, dude, he's, and he invents it every night, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's the, uh, one of the things about the this life that I've lived is, man, there's always some guy out there who's just going to kick, knock my socks off, you know? And it, it, yeah, and Little Joe is one of those guys. But I mean, I knew that with RKL. Yeah, you know? definitely. He's a he, he's a monster. <laughs> real Jesus Christ, right? Huge influence. Yeah, big time. Yeah, and for pick players too, because you know I'm not a, a fascist. I can't hold a pick. That's really the reason I'm a finger player. Right. I'm not really good at it. I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah, when I play guitar, it's a little bit tricky. You okay. know, it's like it's always like because eh, if I'm at home, I just use the edge of my thumb. You know, I don't even think about using a pick, but if I have to demo or, you know, I was playing for a band for a lot of years out here called Endless Monster and, I, you know, playing guitar. And I, that was one of those ones. I, God damn it. I have to learn how to play with a pick now. Right. <laughs> well, you're pretty, old. you're pretty fast with your fingers. I mean, you're, you're yeah, pretty but crisp. It's, but it's not, it's not about speed with the, with the pick versus fingers thing. It's more about tone. You right. Know, right. If you're into the pick tone, only a pick will do. Right. I mean, and for a lot of punk rock people, that is absolutely the tone. Absolutely. And I realize that. I just was never very good at it. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a pick and, guy. I just, I, I think they, because I roll pick, because I'm like basically just playing super like with the guitar. Well, I don't anymore, but I used to. And I think that you're right. It's a tone <laughs> thing. It's it's like a, it's like a accuracy pitch kind of thing. But And an attack thing. And yeah, there's yeah. All, there's all kinds of stuff totally. to say about it. Uh, finger players tend to have more string noise and fret noise. Right. So a lot of engineers kind of prefer pick, which I totally get. You know, I to and I think the in I had when I started working with Bill was that he'd worked with Kira and Chuck. Nice. Who were finger players. So, right. you know, he, he was not that alienated by it. I, I love those guys. You blow them out of the water. Sorry. <laughs> uh, well, I, you know, it's but it's one of those things, man. You know, you're never really big enough to kick your dad's ass. So, you know, when it comes to Dukowski and it comes to Kira, right. you know, I got nothing but love for both of them. Right. You know, and, and once course. again, people who, you know, when I was at a very young age trying to learn how to even do anything, they were doing it. Oh yeah, for sure. And but I mean, I mean, you know, me as a bass player, watching you play live, I was studying you like a book. You know, really watching the way you play. Oh, God, style. Me, you know, but I was at a certain level. You know, I'm I'm up against Watt. I'm up against Tukowski, You yeah, know, in my brutal. brain. And one who doesn't get an often enough shout out is Chris Kirkwood from the Meat Puppets. Yep, for sure. That guy, you know, is so cool because if you want to lie, he wants to lie low. He will lie low. Right. You know, I mean, he is one of my favorite, absolute favorite bass players. And it's funny to talk about because it's like, well, you know, they're hippies. It's, yeah, fuck you. Yeah. They're fucking great. Good music. Good musicians are good musicians. Who cares what they... Oh, and the other one, and somewhere in there, uh, there's a movie in the ether that is called Rock and Roll Punk that I played a role in. I played a bass player. I was typecast. And uh, not typecast was a guy in the film with me as well, which is Greg Norton, who played bass for Husker Du. Can we look it up? 
Well, and he, you can, but he's Greg is one of those guys that I mean, no one gives him enough credit for being the badass he is in bass. Oh yeah, like he was the jumpingest, like you know the guys who jump. Yeah. On stage, Husker do. He was one of the guys who could do that better than anyone. And I listened through the Husker catalog, and man, he's just completely expressive the whole way. Not crazily technical, but man, you know, you, you can't fuck with him. But anyway, I did a whole movie with this guy, which basically meant, you know, me learning how few dirty jokes I do compared to him. Was he in Husker Du the whole time? Yep. So he was on Metal he's, Circus and in yep, a freelance. he's the guy. Yeah, he is that the Husker Du guy. That dude Diane, rips. the guy who did the, yeah. that weird chord figure that started Diane. Yeah, that dude fucking rips, dude. Yeah, man, and he is, right, he's one of my favorite guys, and no one ever brings him up. Yeah, right. It's really one of those ones where it's like, come on, man. I mean, we like Bob, and I'm sorry Grant passed on, and I love Grant. But come on, Greg's out there, and Greg has a band uh, that he, what is, what is his band called? Hang on, it's going to occur to me. He's been doing a band lately. Oh, fuck. Now I'm really, really embarrassed. No, that's okay. Just just Google Greg Norton and find out what he's doing lately, because right. he's been playing out lately, and I'm very, I hope this next, you know, bunch of tour we do once this pandemic passes or whatever that we'll be playing with them you know oh it says Husker Du I don't want to get to find the other bands but he's man you no know, he climbs all that stuff where you climb real far up the neck I mean he's the guy who kind of invented it you know yeah. so and I remember you know those guys playing to less than no one is it, is when it, the first time they came out to Salt Lake and they were seriously one of the best bands I'd ever seen in my life I remember just standing there going, holy fuck. Is it um, Gang Font? No. Yeah, fuck, man. Porcupine? You know what? We were done. Porcupine, that's, that's the one okay. he's doing. Gotcha. Okay. And it's his contemporary thing. He had a thing called Gray Area he was doing yep. for a while. That was it. But, right uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, but Porcupine is his new thing. And I'm just, once again, I can't, it's that nonstop thing. I got to promote the bass players that matter. You know? Yeah. And he's one of them. This is our punk rock bass player episode. Right, we're, we're masturbating all over ourselves up in here. But it, it's a thing. Bass is a thing. Come on, man. I like, love you it. gotta have it. I Everyone, it. all the punk rockers love Sid Vicious. Come on, even though we could barely play, you can tolerate people who know how to play. <laughs> Sid was cool. Sid was an anomaly. He was just they were more into him than actually his skills. He was a personality, and right. maybe pre presage of the modern era in, sure. a, in a lot of ways because his personality was a lot more important than his musicality i yeah. guess yeah he was uh yeah he was insane for sure <laughs> but uh you know right well listen hey jeff here's the thing my uh uh it, we've been on for two hours i've been informed and i've got some stuff to do oh yeah uh is there anything we can, where we can tie this sucker up let's tie it up and uh i'd All like right. to i'd like to get you on again for sure i mean it'll be in the in a while, but I'll, I'll definitely contact you. I'd like to have you well, on again. Of course, of course, I'm wide open, man. I feel like we got so much to cover, <laughs> but We're yeah, in a pandemic. I mean, we got nothing but time. <laughs> but so. hey, but seriously, thank you for coming on. We really appreciate it. It was a trip down memory lane and ama- amazing. All right. Okay. Well, well, we'll we'll touch base again, and thank you for coming on, and we'll see you next time, Carl Alvarez. That was fucking sick. Yeah, I'm fucking way happy. I mean, that, that guy is a huge influence in my bass playing, like I said before, but his technical skill when you watch him live play is really, really good. And if he if you stoke on him, you can watch their their documentary on Blu-ray. They have it. It's called Filmage, 
It's really sick. They talk about the whole story of the Descendants. It's really fucking badass. I highly recommend it. And uh, yeah, well, this is our first episode of season two. Stick around for some more rad interviews, man. We got some shit in the works. Yep, 2021. Wow. No, no, 2020, month 14. There you go. Seems there like it, it right? Because they're saying that, like, oh, my God, it's 2020 is over. Is it really? Because it's still the same fucking bullshit. I think it's time every, like, I would say people have been like, oh, every year it gets worse. I'm like, or it's just how it is. It's Stop putting an arbitrary number to it. <laughs> yeah, right. I don't, I don't, it's not the year's fault. It's people's fault. <laughs> and so... Uh, Thank you guys all for checking out the Jeff Salgado show. We will be back. Thank you all. Peace.